0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. Welcome back to New Books in Urban Studies. This is a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Anna Zelnina, the host of the channel. And this interview today is being recorded in partnership with the Community and Urban Sociology section of the American Sociological Association and its academic journal, City and Community. And today I'll be talking to Felicity Chan. Uh, about her new book, Tensions in Diversity, Spaces for Collective Life in Los Angeles. This book was published in 2022 by the University of Toronto Press. Felicity, welcome to the show. Hi, Anna. Thank you. Uh, You're very welcome. uh, And congratulations on the book. Uh, It's a big achievement. Uh, But why don't we start this interview with a small introduction?
2: Tell us about yourself uh, a few words. Sure, enough. Um So uh, Felicity here, um, and I am speaking um, from Singapore. Uh, and let's see, um, I'm a fellow at the Lee Kuan Yew Center for Innovative Cities at the Singapore University of Technology and Design. Um, and I am born and raised in Singapore, but spent quite a bit of my life in the United States. Right. And this book that
1: we're going to talk about is about Los Angeles, where I understand you did your PhD there. And the book is based on a PhD project. So could you tell us how how this project emerged and how did you transform your PhD into this book?
2: Well, so um, I guess the book started uh, a long time ago. Um, I think it's very much rooted in my experience of living in the U.S. Um, as an international student um, and, and through that uh, just experiencing the, uh, the life of an immigrant. And then coming back uh, in the mid-2000s after my master's in urban planning at Harvard, I, I came home to Singapore. Um, and there, Singapore was also going through its own experience of immigration. Um, during this time, um, what I got was uh, being an Outsider in a in American society and feeling that sort of um how does the immigrant feel I mean, to be to be outside I mean the kind of tensions that you have right not knowing how to articulate certain things and then when I was back in Singapore I was the insider um thinking about how this is a little strange our society is going through um. Uh, quite a lot of societal changes and there are new people. And I guess particularly at this point, uh, there were a lot of Chinese immigrants um, in Singapore. And as many of you might know, Singapore is predominantly Chinese. I mean, it's multicultural. Uh, but I think that also started many people thinking like, why is it that they are the same, but not the same? <laughs> um, and, and so I think this was all these sort of experiences that then led me, when I started my PhD at the University of Southern California, um, to think about that in the context of Los Angeles. And um, I mean, and LA uh, is a place which is just uh, exploding with people from all different parts of the world. And, and that I was, I mean, having already lived in America for about five, six years and then in Los Angeles in a new city and in between I was in Singapore, uh, that really got me to think about um, how could we make the foreigner feel more welcome. So this project really started with how do we have more productive um, thinking and productive encounters um, with someone from the outside in a way that we could... Uh, you know, even two little, small little conversations, we can uh, make someone feel included in the society. So, 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 so that was that basis. And I'm from urban planning, and so it really started me thinking because a lot of discussions about um, foreign-local relations were not about space. And I'm thinking like, look, um, is there something we can do about space? Because space, urban space, is important. Um, it is very central. Uh, at least to how I think about life, <laughs> but I know it is also central in the way of what Amin talks about the urban unconscious, right? So, so that started me thinking: like, could I put these two interests of mine together? And the PhD project was um, kind of um, born <laughs> from that. But how the dissertation then became a book—that—that uh, that is perhaps an even longer journey. <laughs> um, I didn't think of it um, becoming a book, right? Um, yeah, uh, from the outset. But I think towards the end of my dissertation, a professor of mine was saying, Felicity, why don't you think about making your research into a book? Because it sounds like this is uh, something that requires a lot more pages um, to explain, to get the narrative across. Um, So that started me thinking, like, perhaps maybe let me go talk to the publisher during the conference. Um, Maybe they might think this might be interesting. And so I did um, the publishers like, yeah, this is interesting. By the way, that was not University of Toronto Press. Um, you know, at the conferences there's a lot of publishers, but I think that was enough to get me to like. Perhaps I could give this a try. Uh, never thought in my entire life that I would write a book, and um, even less so about a book uh, of about Los Angeles, <laughs> somewhere that um, I was an international student lived there for many years in Southern California, but never thought that I would write a book about it. So. Um, so that was uh, that journey (laughs) I think it's uh, very encouraging for
1: all of us uh, to hear that all of us who are thinking of writing a book based on their PhD thesis so it is possible and people can be interested in these projects but why don't we talk a little bit about LA like what makes it an interesting city I mean there's a lot of research on uh, LA right but like what makes it an interesting city for your particular project what's it like what are the neighborhoods uh, where you worked
2: yeah yeah I mean um, well I I think LA has a very special place in my heart I think I that will begin with I think um, my feelings about Los Angeles <laughs> uh, so my first time in Los Angeles was in the mid 90s uh, I visited my brother who was studying there at that point and I thought to myself well I never live in this city. I don't like it. <laughs> um, it was a very different from the type of cities I visited. Um, it just turned my urban sensibilities upside down, um, and I was not ready to accept it. Uh, but there came life has this life and twists. I ended up in Los Angeles, um, and for many years. And and now I'm thinking of maybe I should visit Los Angeles this summer, right? Because <laughs> uh, it really does has grown on me. Um, And so when I first uh, arrived there um, for my PhD, uh, I I think it was just simply its vastness uh, that was overwhelming. Um, And I know that this was also a place where it's extremely international. Um, I have lived in Boston before that, and Boston itself is a microcosm of the world um, in many cases. But LA just... uh, blew my mind I would say it's the city that why is it there's so much congestion there's so much pollution but yet so many people come uh, what 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 is about it um, and I've by, by then I've read a lot about stuff about written about la and I think that I have to say that although I did not it's not my first love um it is something that has always been intellectually stimulating and so why la for the project I think I was simply in LA. And L.A. presented itself uh, as extremely diverse. Um, L.A. uh, was also a place um, where I I think I have got this um, philosophy um, um, for myself as a researcher that I like to do research in the city that I live in. Um, And and so, I mean, with the questions I had uh, then um, and with the place that I found myself in, uh, I think then that just... Got me thinking, and of course, LA is a place that people talk about not having much of a public space um, mentality. Um, and I think that that question is also addressed in the book, like what are the possibilities um, of local public places for intercultural learning? Um, yeah. So, yeah. So that was how I started to study this phenomena in LA and found a lot of interesting um, findings.
1: Yeah right and uh in the book and in the project you focus on three neighborhoods right and i think it's also uh it, why did you choose these three what are they like and uh how uh, how are they special in terms of your
2: research question yeah so it took me some time to find those neighborhoods um and they uh they came or, or they emerged um in a way that is not completely uh It's more serendipitous. (laughs) Uh, So the first neighborhood uh, was Central Long Beach um, that I found. So I was doing a project with uh, my advisor and a PhD senior there, um, looking at all these ethnic towns in Los Angeles. So little Filipino um, uh, Filipino town, um, uh, little Saigon, and Cambodia town was one of them, and Cambodia town in Central Long Beach. And so I was there. I was like, oh, this is a very, very special place. So you know I'm from Southeast Asia and when I was there and I visited some of the shops and that it was in um, 2010, uh, the year 2010, and I was transported back to how shops looked like in Singapore in the 80s. So it was a very strange experience, um, both familiar but also not. And I just felt like there was something in this neighborhood that I wanted to come back to. So that became the first neighborhood. Um, and of course, in Cambodia town, uh, what I found there was also that um, that it was not, like many ethnic towns in Los Angeles, uh, that's not the biggest population, right? Uh, most of the populations were Hispanics. <laughs> the Cambodians were large, uh, I think 20%, but not the biggest, but it was called Cam- Cambodia. I mean, it is called Cambodia town. So, um, so. Something is going on. <laughs> and I think usually that's how I like to um go about my project. Something is going on. It's more of an intuition um from anecdotal evidence. And I also found um then like, okay, perhaps I should look for places where there are conflicts and tensions um that are in the newspapers. So I started looking around Los Angeles. Um and then the next neighborhood was I, I found was um San Marino. And San Marino, um Is an extremely rich neighbourhood, right? I mean, usually immigrant diversity, poor neighbourhood. So Central Long Beach um, was below the uh, annual household income, um, the the average household income in Los Angeles County. Um, And so this was like way high, right? So it's like, okay, I mean, I think that when I think about Los Angeles, I wanted to look for neighbourhoods that represented what I was experiencing. Very poor neighborhoods, very rich neighborhoods. Um, And so when I found the poor neighborhood, uh, I also started looking at what are the other neighborhoods. And San Marino is a rich one. And over there, I mean, I also knew that there were um, uh, problems, right, between groups. I was like, okay, let me go check this out. And I knew people who lived in that neighborhood. Um, And so I thought maybe this might be a practical way since at least I have a starting point to um, get the interviews going. So that then left me with the third neighborhood, right? Because I wanted it to be poor, rich, and maybe a mix. And so at this point, um, where could a mix be? Um, And I was also advised, uh, and my PhD advisor said, maybe you should look for somewhere uh, a little more accessible and I thought that was an extremely good idea because uh, LA has so much driving. And I think this was one of the um, challenges, practical challenges doing this piece of work was I was driving a lot with congestion because um, Central Long Beach and San Marino were uh, at least one hour away. Um, and that was a day uh, when I uh, had some Friends from the RC21 visit me in LA, and uh, and Anna know some of them, and they wanted to see my sites, um, my my few sites. So I r- drove them to the San Marino and the Central Long Beach, and I was like, wow, this is really far. I mean, but thank goodness I never had to do that on a single day. But nevertheless, it was enough driving for the week if I had to go to both sites. So the third site was very close to University of Southern California, and this was also um the Mid Wilshire area, which is really um right smack in the city of LA. Um, And this place has like over a hundred nationalities living in there. And uh, in the book, I talk about how it's really a polarized neighborhood, but taken as a whole, it was that sort of mixed kind of neighborhood. And so that was how I found um, the third neighborhood. And I also knew that from reading the papers that there were some tensions between the groups um, there. uh, Between, I mean, there was... The place of Koreatown and Little Bangladesh, and they were having some issues. But the more I dig, the more I found out other tensions. <laughs> right? Uh, so, so, so that was it. Sorry, I mean it took a while to explain the three sides, but yes.
1: <laughs> well, they're totally worth it because it, also in the book you had you have such rich descriptions of those places, and I've told you earlier that I felt transported. Uh, it, 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 those are really um, great descriptions of those uh, places, but maybe this is also a good time to discuss my next question, and this is how you conceptualize neighborhood and community, because uh, those are not the same things for you, right? And you talk about neighborhoods, so you selected those physical kind of pl- places, neighborhoods, but what about the community part of it? <laughs>
2: Yeah so um that question uh, community versus neighborhood uh is something that I think we can spend like one whole hour <laughs> talking about and I I think I, it was I, I I'm really thankful that um very early on in this project uh I have been um asked this question so I'm glad I didn't walk into a landmine uh to you know simply thinking that um Calling a community is the same as calling a neighborhood. Uh, So I think community is something that is defined from inside out. um, And neighborhood has a tendency to be defined from outside in. Um, And so I was very careful. In fact, even the word neighborhood, I have a hard time using it. Should I use it? Should I not? Because it's just so value laden. Um, certainly I cannot use community because, I mean, what do I know about the people there if I've not even studied it, right? Um, how they think about who they are, how they group themselves, what are their commonalities. So, so yes. Um, so in this case... Uh, uh, the neighborhood the term of the neighborhood um, in the book i most of the time I refer to locales i mean this was a real struggle. Um, I wanted something uh broad enough and not um, already defined um, by a researcher uh, so yeah so but at the same time, how people talk about neighborhoods right if you ask them what is their neighborhood, they are not necessarily talking the way that planners tend to think about, which is often defined from outside in. They are also talking about their community. Um, And it is tricky that way. And so there is that whole intellectual part about community versus neighborhood. And then when you have to put that in your interview schedule and your questions, what words should you use so that people understand what you're trying to ask? And by using those words, are you then giving them ideas of what you are actually trying to find out? <laughs> um, so 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 it was a struggle um, between community and neighbourhood, but um, uh, they are different things. Um, and I hope the book uh, avoided that light that landmine and that I let the I mean I I wanted the voices of the people to tell us what was community to them, what was neighbourhood to them, and for that reason. Um, part of the uh, research project was also using cognitive mapping. And one of my questions is, um, could you, I think, um, uh, trace out or circle out or whatever shape you want to and uh, like, where is your neighborhood? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, so I wanted to know how they define the neighborhood, um, how they think, think about their locale. Um, yeah, so that was... Um, I think how I saw the difference between community and neighborhood and certainly uh, works by Talia Blockland, you know, um, reminded me clearly to be very careful uh, when you do uh, a piece of research about these kind of issues. Uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> Great. And speaking of how, how you did your research, you have a very creative mix of methods in, in this project, right? Like, why, why don't you talk a little bit about that? How did you actually do the research?
2: Okay, um, yeah, so yes, um, I use cognitive mapping (laughs) um, as um, quite a big part of this project, but um, that is combined together with semi-structured questions and interview, uh, which oftentimes became in-depth interviews. I I think that was one interview that ran into like five hours long, and it was... (laughs) It was supposed to be, I mean, it was uh, crafted to be one hour and maybe 20 minutes, 15 minutes, but it went way past five hours. Um, so, and um, then I, I did survey, I uh, used survey, and also a good share of ethnographic interview when I could not take up my... Um, Recorder or start writing notes, you know, um, for many reasons, um, and I'll maybe talk a little bit about that, you know, in a bit, uh, as well as participant observation. So, so, so these were the main methods, and I think let me start with cognitive mapping. Um, so, cognitive mapping, I've always been enchanted by it since I came across it um, when I was a college student um, about Kevin Lynch, uh, and and, and what he did. <laughs> and, and, and so um, and to me, uh I wanted to study social space, and I'm also very enchanted by the works of Lefebvre um, about the production of space, about the three aspects of space. Um, so I think uh it, it just dawned on me that cognitive mapping, right, like perhaps could be used. I mean, now I'm a lot more convinced. Uh, at the start of my project, I was like, yeah, I think maybe there's something here, right? The cognitive mapping could be a conceived space. Um, it could definitely tell us how people navigate, which is what Lynch was trying to do. Um, so their perceived space, their spatial practices can be recorded on a map. And the lived space, which um, Lynch did not quite explore it, uh, but we know the lived space is something which is really important. And I think when I'm talking about... Um, Tensions, right? I mean, that sort of relationships within um, in in diverse locations that that live symbolic space is extremely important. So I said, well, but cognitive mapping could tell you how people use space, where they go, uh, why they go to certain things. If you combine it with questions, right, about their routines, about how they feel about um, living there. Uh, so I thought that was what I did, um, and um, yeah, so. So using the method was uh, also another um, something that required a bit of thinking, because um, if you're familiar with uh, Kevin Lynch method, he was using, you know, blank sheets and you sketch on it, right? So you sketch um, how you're, I mean, how you move from this place to that. Uh, And what I wanted was because I'm doing three neighborhoods and I wanted to be comparative and since uh, my intention was wanting to answer the question of, okay, now you found out all these things. In my neighborhood, so what, right? That urban planner policy um, bit in me is like, I need to at least have some basis of comparison. That is, um, between all the three sites, I should use the same questions. Um, I probably should use the same kind of maps, but of the different place. So I thought, like, let's let me use the street map, Google Map, and. Knowing that people have problems with just sketching, right? Not everybody feels comfortable on a blank sheet of paper. I said, at least if you were to circle and draw lines, perhaps, and Google Map by then, you know, people were comfortable looking at them. I said, let me try that. And even that was like, okay, let's use two scale. I mean, I was told like some people's neighborhood might be even bigger than the scale that you've chosen. So give them two maps. So this was a great advice from my PhD advisor who has um, used cognitive mapping in his own work before. Um, yeah, Tridib Banerjee is my PhD advisor. So, yeah, so it, I mean, I I would say that the preparation of using the method took a while. The analysis of what then I collected took an even longer time. Um, and talking about them in a way to weave them into the narrative was a. Uh, uh, Extremely challenging, <laughs> so to speak. Okay, so 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 that was um, cognitive mapping. Um, I would normally how I used it was I would go to a place, a library, and ask people a list of questions, like where they live, and to just break the ice and all that, and um, and get them to map out where they go, so I could find out uh, uh, who are the people who go to certain places. Were there places of encounters uh, where people of Different ethnic groups and nationality groups would somehow at least be uh, co-present, even whether or not they are talking. Um, so, so that was one way for me to do that. So, uh, yeah. So, I think in the book I describe my experiences there. I mean, I don't think I got greeted uh, um, in the most uh, in the friendliest fashion all the time because. Um, of course, uh, there there are many issues as even as you do research in a in a diverse setting, right? I mean, I think I talk about my positionality as a researcher, um, and maybe you can talk more about it later. But anyhow, so the interview would normally take one and a half hours because of the mapping, and then I would um, ask them if they could stay for um, a bit to do the survey, uh, which is trying to understand. Um, uh, their preferences and all their preferences for the type of public spaces um, to have the kind of encounters with different groups of people. Uh, yeah, I know I mean it's uh, it's really long. I I think maybe I'll stop here. <laughs> <laughs>
1: but but I think it's, it it is really important to talk about your methods because they are innovative and still comparative. I really like this idea of a comparative approach with the cognitive mapping part in it. But maybe you could just talk a bit about your positionality. You already brought it up because it was a big part of your um, of your research process. So what, you you also have a very interesting reflection on that in the book. So how would you reflect on on your
2: positionality in the field? Oh, about my positionality. Yeah, um, well, um, yeah, I think what was uh, very interesting for me, I think I've learned a lot just doing research in LA um, and going to three different sites, um, is that uh, these are... um, they are mixed in all different ways, right? There are different groups of people living there um, in central Long Beach. Uh, There were Cambodians and um, uh, Hispanics. uh, um, There were also Black Americans and some white. And San Marino is mainly very wealthy uh, Asians, um, Chinese and um, white Americans. And Mid-Wilshire is like we have a lot of others. Uh, And they're also socioeconomically different, um, mainly in terms of household income, Uh, and so here I am, right? I am not part of any of those three neighbourhoods. <laughs> um, i I'm from the outside. I'm from the outside, outside, uh, right? Um, uh, I, you know, um, in some neighbourhoods, I look like some of them. In some neighbourhoods, I certainly stand out like a sore thumb. Um, and it doesn't help uh, taking... A camera taking I mean like just taking a camera around um in some neighborhoods to take pictures because it's like nobody wants to linger uh in a place when it's not safe to be in <laughs> uh on the streets right and why are you taking pictures of things that perhaps are not even picture worthy uh so that was a uh, a lot of awkwardness so to speak um so maybe I'll speak about the different sites because they were all very different um and I think this was also a challenge of doing a comparative research um, uh, across uh, three sites with many different types of people who um, understand things a little differently. And what I thought makes sense in one location in terms of my questions did not make sense in another. The other group of people living in another neighborhood couldn't really understand. And so I did a fair amount of preliminary um, work before I finally went out to collect the data proper. Okay, so in Central Long Beach, I think I spoke about how being raised in um, Singapore and being transported into bits of my childhood in the 80s. Um, and so I, I think I described in my book that um, I'm so I'm fourth generation Singaporean um, and I'm Chinese, uh, but. I don't feel very Chinese um, in some sense. I mean, Chinese enough, but then I think I described how when Chinese immigrants came from China, I started to feel like perhaps I'm not that Chinese. Um, So in central Long Beach, I encountered a lot of Cambodian um, seniors who uh, I think, really enjoyed talking to me, right? Because they could uh, they asked me if I could speak um, Mandarin, um, I could speak Cantonese, I could understand other Chinese dialects, and I, I could do about two or three of them. And so they were really happy. They were very open to talking to me, uh, allowing me to sit with them um, during lunch. Um, so I did a fair bit of that ethnographic um, uh, ethnographic interviews then. Um but uh, yeah, and I think I also described that uh, because of, I think, I don't know, maybe being fourth generation in Singapore, I am um, uh, I sometimes can be mistaken in Los Angeles oftentimes uh, that I could be Hispanic. <laughs> so there I was in central Long Beach. Um, some people, I mean, it was kind of a mixed-looking person, I guess, in that way. Um, Asian enough, but yet there is a trace of doubt that perhaps she's not, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But of course, I couldn't speak Spanish. Um, So there, I felt welcomed uh, by the group of Cambodian seniors, um, but also because of, uh, I mean, who I am. I mean, I do PhD research. Um, I um, uh, feel certainly more socioeconomically privileged um, in a poorer neighbourhood and I had had to deal with my so- sense of just standing out and I didn't, yeah. But uh, that was overcome um, when the the librarians there would open the library for me to do my research in, because, I mean, it was also not a very particularly safe place um, neighbourhood at that time. Um, there, there were drive-by shootings. I mean, there were gangs um, in their areas. And so, uh, yeah. So, so that was... Uh, that in Central Long Beach, um, I felt kind of at home, but not really at home. Um, then San Marino, I am Chinese. <laughs> there are a lot of Asians there, uh, but uh, that number of uh, growing number of Asians also created, I mean, w- w- was a source of tension, right? Uh, so I was very well aware that um, of that, and, and so I had to explain that you know I'm from Singapore, you know, so I'm not really uh, the group of people represented there um, so that hopefully that would ease attention but it really helped that I'm from the University of Southern California because I think that's something they uh, recognize um, and many some of them who I talked to were alumni um, of the university so I think that that opened some doors uh, yeah um, so in that neighborhood um, I'm not in that category of um social economic class, I felt a little awkward too. And in that neighborhood, because um, it's not a neighborhood whereby people walk on the streets a lot, right? There's a main commercial spine. Um, and so you don't bump into anyone. And doing interviews there is really by referral, right? You talk to someone, someone say, OK, you can talk to someone else, and then you can. And so on and so forth. You don't go to a park. I mean, you hardly bump to anybody anywhere. Um, so so that was San Marino. And then Mid-Wilshire was, wow. I mean, I thought I was by then. Um, I've done the two sites. It's like Okay, I'm equipped. But in Mid-Wilshire, it was like you're in the middle of, I don't know, like Times Square or something like that. I, I don't know. I'm not that familiar in New York. But just having all kinds of traffic, like different people moving across. Like where do you even start? And so um, I started in the library, right? I found... Um, a library, and, and that was also part of the interview um, or rather the, the research design that I wanted to find out the possibilities of local places for meaningful encounters. And so in each of the sites, I made sure that there was a park, a public park, and a library and a community club if possible. Um, and so I started from the library. And from that library, um, I was then able to meet people from the Philippines, um, from Korea, From um, from you know I mean there were also a few white Americans there were black Americans in there Um, there were people from uh, where else Um, I don't know I mean like oh yeah from from all walks of life right in the library Uh, but yet I know that it's a bit of self selection who turns up in the library so I knew I had to go outside the library to look for other people. Well, I think, if anything, I think there was a park in mid-Wilshire, which I felt extremely privileged as a woman. (laughs) Um, Lovely park, a lot of children, and feels really safe. That's why they are there uh, with their nannies and their parents. And I was able to walk into the playground, right, and ask if I could interview the parents. I think um, I wouldn't have the privilege if I was not, um, uh, you know, uh, a woman, I think, uh, there was no not, no questions, uh, there were no shifting glances, uh, I felt perfectly fine and I think being Asian too in the context of mid wilshire uh, was helpful um, for me, I mean for the people that I met from the Philippines, um, from Korea, uh, who felt an immediate, I think, connection to me um, and being international was also helpful. Uh, I think that's one thing I want to mention here, which I did not expect going to the field, is that I, I felt like I had, I think, among the conversations, super good conversations with Black Americans. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think, although I have some Black American classmates, I mean, I have to say that, uh, unfortunately, I have not um, had the privilege of knowing many of them as very close friends. Um, and so conversations are also not as deep. But during this field work, um, I got to speak to several of them. And I think as I reflected about why our conversations has always just been so good and deep, I think it was also because that, um, yeah, perhaps, because being a woman, um, uh, being an outsider, perhaps being a minority, uh, this was some of an equal status position that perhaps made them feel like they could open up to me. Uh, Yeah, and... And their perspective on some of these issues uh, was something that was very poignant to me every time that would I mean I I got to do an interview with them, um, so yes. <laughs>
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off.
1: I think it's very clear from your discussion of positionality how important this question was for your actual research theme, right? Because it's all about public places, intergroup relations, and it all reflects in your own being there. And I I think it's so interesting that you start with a question like, where do I even find all these different groups? Like, how do I meet people in Los Angeles? and i wanted you to talk a little bit more about this so your theme is intergroup relations public places so how where, where's your contribution and how do you see your main um kind of um theoretical uh issues here
2: hmm i think i would uh i think this is always a uh, something um yeah i Perhaps don't think about enough. <laughs> it was like, okay, this is interesting. Let me go you know, understand this a bit more. um I did not think so much about the theoretical conversation I was um uh contributing to I mean but certainly uh i I had to think about that um at least when it had to become a book, right? But as a PhD project, I think it was a great privilege that my advisor was just open to me doing anything that would interest me um, and, and he can support. And so um, as long as we could, uh, you know, show which are the theoretical gaps, uh, th- that's good, you know. So I I, I was very thankful for that. But I have to say, um, maybe the works of Ash Amin, um, uh, I think the title it was published in 2002, Ethnicity and... Um, yeah, in the multicultural world or something like that. And Leonie Cox' work on Towards Cosmopolis. Those were two foundational pieces that uh, got me thinking, like, I want to do something um, about this, right? Because, I mean, they did talk about how there were all these conflicts, tensions, and, I mean, how do we build something more beyond that? Uh, but uh, what they had was a description of what that thing could be. And, and I wanted to know as an urban planner, like, like how to make this happen, right? You know, what are the qualities of space uh, to do this? So I think um, they were extremely foundational for me. And I wanted to uh, so-called uh, bring, bring or, or rather to, to uh, progress that conversation, right? To something a lot more tangible that planners can take it. Um, and do something about it. (laughs) Uh, So so I think if I would say this would be one of the major contributions of this piece of work that I hope I've done. Um, And the other thing, though, is um, is this, that um, I was in my undergrad trained as a geographer, um, and so does this social science bit in me. And I just feel like um, with the years of, being a planner, I, I think that sometimes planning tends to rush into things. Uh, I, they don't really quite understand the context, but let me give the solutions and here are the interventions. And this was very unsatisfying for me. Um, and so what I try to do in this book is like, let me first go find out what is going on, and then let's see if we can find some um, form of, uh, I wouldn't even call solutions, but at least some ways forward, right? Um, to, to address some of these questions. So uh, I think this is, I hope it's also a second contribution, um, which is kind of related to the first, uh, that, that, that this book does not just stop at describing what is going on there, but it tries to say, let's see, you know, let's find some ways of moving forward together. Um, yeah, so, so I think these are two main things um, uh, that I thought about. Let's see. Um,
1: yeah, and but maybe you could talk a bit more about, uh, so what what have you found? How What aspects or what kind of features of urban space lead to intercultural learning, as you call it, or which features kind of facilitate more conflict and antagonism? So what are those aspects of urban space?
2: Yeah, so I think one of the... Th- thanks for asking that question. Sometimes... Uh, I I get carried away in one direction. I was like, I think I forgot what Hannah asked. (laughs) But thanks for repeating. Um, So one of the uh, happy outcome uh, of of this piece of work is um, I was happy to engage with the work of Kevin Lynch, Image of the City, to then look at how how different are the images of a diverse city. I mean, he did his work in the late 50s and 60s, um, late 50s and early 60s. And and so I think if anything, um, this book, which is uh, the focus on diversity as a social spatial phenomena, um, not just social uh, or simply spatial, but social spatial, uh, tries to then, you know, Put together, what are some of these like spatial forms, right? Um, that are grown out of people's practices. Uh, so, um, are paths that important? I think his image of the city had like five elements, and and what I found was that uh, places of um, Locales of diversity, uh, districts are extremely important. You know, people are grouping themselves. There are territories there. Um, there are a lot of unseen boundaries, <laughs> uh, so to speak. Right, most physical, um, and but physically, I mean, it's physical, but but it's invisible unless you live in the neighborhood. You know what streets not to walk on, um, and so I think to do sensitive planning in those places. Um I think we need to recognize that space matters. Um yeah, that that uh how people group themselves and, and there's tons of what, you know, um edges, right? A lot of borders within what we think is a coherent neighborhood, but actually is broken into many pieces and they're overlapping. Um and, and I think this is what I found. Um and so what does that mean then, right? Uh, <laughs> I think one of the big deal is uh, this. Um, I, I think I summarized it, not summarized, but I uh, talked about it as like eight place qualities um, uh, that, that we should think about. Um, so one of them, which extremely important is safety. Uh, safety came up as Tommy in East Los Angeles. I don't know if it looks a little different for other places, but you need to feel safe in order to feel that you can open up um, to a stranger. Um, and safety is, yeah, for, for that reason, um, maybe is extremely uh, obvious. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that I systematically, I mean, I did a systematic research and analysis to find that out. <laughs> so you need to feel, feel safe to open up. Um, and you need to have programs to help you open up. So you need a trigger. And I think this is something that uh, oftentimes in urban planning, uh, we just plan the space. And then we're like, we cannot be social engineers. We shouldn't disturb how people. We cannot control how they do. Let us just step back. Uh, No, but I think what this shows that people need help. Not everybody has got like competences to navigate uh, uh, that sort of um, borders and boundaries uh, between cultures, right? And and so give them some help. You need to organize some programs to uh, trigger conversations uh, for them to feel not awkward starting a conversation with a stranger or a familiar stranger. Um, I think the other thing, what was very important um, is this, that uh, that in these places, you need to have good access, um, accessibility, not just simply uh, is nearby, but people feel comfortable being in that space. It needs to be neutral, right? Um, I think uh, uh, these places, we know that if it's going to be a local public place, uh, you want them to, everybody, every group should feel welcome. Um, and I and I think if they don't, likely some groups would not turn up. <laughs> I, I remember I had to do, uh, what, one of the things was, um, I was going around to the public parks, and one of the public parks I went to just to take a look at it and to see if I can find somebody um, to talk to during one of my um, uh, few work uh, in central long beach i walked in the park and immediately i was picked out someone came over to the park and said like what are you doing here um it was like 2 p.m you know there were kids playing around i thought it was safe enough um but no i mean um there was a whole group of people in the park um doing something um and one person came over and asked me, what, "What are you doing here?" So I explained myself um, and tell them what I'm doing, and I say, oh, okay, you know, it, it, that's fine. You 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 can hang around here um, and ask a few more questions." And then I, yeah, and and I knew that I was not obviously very welcome, right? And and I could imagine that when uh, there are too many of a group there. Uh, it could feel threatening. I was already kind of threatened, but I went ahead anyway because I was like, I need to talk to more people. So I just, uh, but you know, so 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 that was uh, that was my experience. I think it needs to be neutral. But how do you achieve that neutral feeling? I think it's a challenge um, when you have many people are trying to have some kind of spatial claims on space um, in a diverse neighborhood. I think the other things are perhaps uh, very common sense um, uh, that I found. I mean, food gathers people. If you allow, you know, people to share food, um, there's some commonalities. I mean, uh, the other thing I also noticed that um, having dogs, right, or children, like what we call props, <laughs> really help to get the conversation started. I mean, I think as adults, we tend to become more reticent, um, that we don't want the attention on us. But if the attention can be on a third object, <laughs> um, at least that's uh, an icebreaker moment. Um, yeah. So 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 these are some of the examples that I've. Um, I mean, not examples. I think qualities that I found um, after talking to, I think over a hundred people. Uh, that that they were just recurrent patterns. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't know if I answered your question.
1: <laughs> you did, yeah. But I want you to talk a bit more about tensions and conflicts, which are not the same thing in your book, right? And what are they like in those three different neighborhoods? Because they also kind of have different uh, conflicts uh, brewing uh, in them. So what can you tell us about those?
2: Well, um, okay. So uh, I I always feel like tensions is like... Um, something of like an intuition is like a feeling, right? You feel it. You can't quite put words to it. And conflict is something that um, normally you can see it. Uh, it becomes a lot more obvious. And, and I think for this reason, uh, it, it's been said that tension um, by Lewis Worth, right, who did his uh, piece, I think, in 1940, uh, in 1940 uh, the project, um, uh, that is basically tension... Um, with uh, tension is uh, latent conflict. <laughs> so conflict that is about to happen or could happen. Um, and yeah, so I think these are two different things. And I feel like on the everyday basis um, in living in diversity, there's always like this feeling that you're, you cannot be too comfortable. I mean, you might offend somebody, Um or you might feel marginalized in some circumstances, or, or you might just feel like I don't like how that person um, is um, is behaving, right? Like that 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 kind of thing is like you don't talk about it, you just feel it. So I feel like um, so I think the word tensions really get across at this kind of very almost mundane, banal complaints <laughs> that we have uh, that are silent, um, but we also know that when you allow that to happen um, between friends uh, between couples uh that can escalate into something bigger um so can we you know start to recognize some of these tensions and let's do something about it right uh but now I wanted to say that too that conflicts like tensions um are not necessarily bad things um uh right i mean i think we've read enough uh Um, from intellectual discussions to know that they can be creative. Um, They can allow us to then confront certain things that we shared uh, before it becomes like a meltdown. Um, uh, But it can also be destructive if it's just ongoing, right? With no possibility of finding some form of productive resolution. Uh, So I want to add a bit of a personal um, take on this. I mean, uh, being... um, I think, race uh, as an Asian, (laughs) uh, in the Asian society, um, harmony is very much like just um, uh, regarded very highly. And I know I'm using Asia in a very broad sense because Asia is huge, right? But in that part of Asia that I grew up in, um, conflicts are bad things, Um, you know? I mean, tensions are everywhere, right? Because conflicts are bad things. <laughs> so you must not say anything. So there's a lot of you know dysfunctional families. <laughs> I mean at least uh, you just don't talk about problems. Um you're not supposed to uh supposed to wish them away. And so it took me a long time um to just uh come to terms with myself. That tensions can be a good thing. And I think this is uh, something I've talked about in the book. Tensions can be a good thing, but when does it become bad? Uh, (laughs) uh, When is it, you know, dualistic tensions? I I think I talk about them is when it's an either or. uh, It it starts to be bad because you couldn't build any more consensus. But if it's dialogical, at least there is a possibility of finding a way forward. Um, So, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so, so so these are the two concepts for me and how I thought about them uh, when I worked on the project. Uh, could you give an example
1: from one of the neighborhoods or maybe even a comparative example of how this actually plays out in the
2: urban spaces? Um, okay. <laughs> we we talked a little bit about this just now, about how after you've written something and it's so long, it's like, wait a second, <laughs> I have to recall this uh like to see mm.
1: yeah i thought it was just so interesting that in the rich san marino neighborhood it looked so different from let's say central long beach just the questions and kind of the topics that are uh, at the core of those tensions so but maybe we can leave it for the listeners to read for themselves in in, in your book uh but um uh, Maybe another thing that I thought was interesting, and maybe you could just talk about it a little bit. Um, You spoke to the people from different groups, right? Different ethnic and racial groups. And I thought it was so interesting that white residents, especially in those kind of better off neighbourhoods, they had a very different account of how intercultural and how kind of dialogical their neighbourhoods are. So do you have an explanation for that? It's. I don't think you talk about it too much in your book, but I'm sure you have ideas for why white residents uh, have a more positive idea about their neighbourhoods.
2: Yeah, I guess I'll start with Mid-Wilshire. Um, Mid-Wilshire was a neighbourhood whereby where I met people uh, white Americans uh, who are there for the diversity so uh, they weren't thrown into that area I mean of course in Mid-Wilshire in the book you see that there's the very wealthy part and the part that is not and the part that is kind of in between like just a few street blocks um, and the white Americans I talked to there chose Mid-Wilshire for that diversity it was voluntary um now, I mean, that of course wasn't the case uh, for the other people who I spoke to. Um, not all, but most of them, you know, are there because they don't have a choice, right? Uh, to live anywhere else. Um, and and I, I mean, I think this is a really good question you asked um, because why, why, I think it's like, so I thought about this um, and that I think it's the fact that you could choose, you have a choice. Um, to engage um, or disengage and i i think choice means a lot uh, when it comes to uh, being open to meeting somebody who is different um, and wanting to do it you're not being you know it's not you know pushed into it and then whether you like it or not you have to deal with it i think that that already sets the tone but i think the other dimension is also that you um, all the other non white people, not all, uh, but that um many of them are immigrants. Um, some are first generations, um many of them I talked to uh, first generations, and there were some second generations, um, Asian Americans and um and uh um and Hispanic Americans. Uh but uh but I think that um, what is going on here is this, that as an immigrant, especially the first generation, you might not feel like you belong. Um, so you have just arrived, or even you have been there for 30, 40 years. This is, you know, I mean, it's home for 30, 40 years, but you don't feel like you're being fully accepted. Um, and and I think that feeling of not um, being part like wholeheartedly part of the mainstream, uh, perhaps make you feel like you're not as comfortable just um, uh, wanting to um, uh, be reaching out. I think I talk about safety, about comfort. I think when you are comfortable in your own skin in a place, I think that's when you are ready to go out. And I think which means which makes intercultural learning very ha- difficult to happen. And that's why it needs quite a bit of help. Um, uh, so I think that could be the reason um, that I don't feel like I completely belong and I think in even in the case of San Marino um, you would imagine that being socioeconomically uh, at par with the rest of America or even above uh, you could belong you, you, you have elected to belong in San Marino but when you talk to them you realise that their belonging for the first generation um, is very selective like you must also feel like you're accepted. And not everybody, in fact, most of them don't feel 100%. Um, And I think for that reason too, I think the other thing is also language. I mean, English is the main language of use um, uh, in America um, in most parts. (laughs) Um, And I think if you can't speak the language as fluently um, or as clearly, um, you might feel a little awkward. to, to engage uh, fully. Um, I don't have an American accent. Uh, and so there are times when I myself feel awkward speaking because, uh, you know, people pick you up. Uh, I think I talk about this L- LA small talk um, in the book. And um, yeah, that uh, in LA small talk is like an icebreaker, right? People are checking out who you are. And my exited English <laughs> gets picked up um, all the time. And um, I don't think I really enjoy it particularly, but I think this is a reality of living in America. Uh, but uh, now, I mean, having said that, I think that I also give a very positive way of looking at LA small talk, that LA small talk um, can, be, can be an effective icebreaker. Uh, uh, now, now, having said that, um, I think when it goes on for too long, uh, life in LA can feel like a uh forever cocktail party. Um, having is having a hard time to you know build real deep friendships, and that can be frustrating, and I think that can be alienating. Um, but I think like what I said uh at the start of this conversation is that if we can even give, at least begin to give some hope of inclusion, um then. It is a start, right? Then LA small talk can be that that someone from the mainstream or whatever how you conceive the mainstream or, or part of the neighborhood is talking to you, um, and of course some are you know not just simply being you know f- uh, that friendly or wanting to talk but checking you out. But there's all these different kinds of things. So yes, um, yeah. So this is uh, what I thought LA small talk can be good for. <laughs>
1: yeah I, I really liked your uh, discussion of l a small talk in the book because it's one of those uh, mechanisms, right that kind of foster intercultural learning. But speaking of other things that may or may not help, you also have um, a discussion of uh, intercultural festivals or what are they called like those celebrations, public celebrations of different cultures. But you have a very skeptical account of those. so why why is that?
2: um I think I have to say this, that um, uh, I think there are very good ways of um, uh, highlighting or spotlighting on the diversities, right, in a locale, um, in a city. Uh, but they often stop at that, right? You know, they have people come and show you, okay, this is what we eat. I mean, there's almost like a – it could even create some form of like um, – It it could, you know, when you push it to its limits. Um, And it stops there. It's like a few hours uh, on a Saturday morning. Um, And what do people do with that? I mean, it has a lot of potential of just bring about um, forming new relationships because you do meet people, they talk, there's always food, uh, and you exchange phone numbers or something like that. And, And then from there, you could Uh, go and develop um, a deeper relationship so I I think it has the potential um, but oftentimes how do we go to those festivals we often go with friends you know um, likely you know um, uh, people we are really comfortable with for that reason because we know we are going to feel uncomfortable in uh, the crowds of strangers (laughs) from everywhere And so most of us don't actually break out of our friends, you know, we just sit with our friends and then we go back with our friends and then nothing happens. Um, And then, well, I guess wherever that is, we'll say, okay, we have done this cultural thing, you know, check. But what actually happens the day after? Um, Nothing has changed, perhaps. Nothing has changed, maybe in some small ways it has. So I think that it has a lot of potential uh, to spark Conversations, but I think conversations needs to carry on. It needs to be an everyday thing, um, yeah. And and so, but most of um, the cultural festivals don't do that. Uh, it's a good starting point, but it's not sustained. And I think I I I talked to the people there who attended year after year the same parades um, and festivals and. They tell me that, you know, I I go with my friends, I sit with my friends and my friends are usually from my own ethnic groups or nationality groups. And then, you know, that's it. Uh, We don't meet anyone else. So, yeah. (laughs) All right.
1: But to kind of summarize uh, our conversation a little bit. So what do you think are the main takeaways from your research uh, that maybe urban planners can uh, work with to make it more kind of interculturally friendly? Um, what do you suggest to planners and designers?
2: Um, Well, so I think that we probably hear that a lot already, but I guess I would just say it again, that oftentimes when we think about um, uh, planning um, public uh, spaces, we think of them as public spaces, you know, space, physical space. Uh, But I, I think I talk about trying to design for public life. Um, you know you're talking about um, the activities there uh, the, the people who can come um, and i I think uh, I think this is something that I hope that the book have um, has actually tried to bring this across um, and I think what I've thought about is also why is uh, urban planning profession and the type of things we do tend to get uh, stuck in a certain way of thinking. <laughs> um, so for this project, I also talked to planners and municipal offices right, um, in the three neighborhoods. And what I hear there is this, is that um, diversity, um, in this case of like social cultural diversity, is really think of as a mix. Um, and, and we know mix is such a uh, broad word what 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 does it really mean and and i I think um yeah it it it, it just uh, does not go beyond that, you know, it's a nice social mix, and the planners just end there so I think um and uh, the the other thing is is a nice social mix uh so you know this could be a advantage for economic development <laughs> uh, so I, I think it's all those terms that uh, bring across that um Diversity is an advantage. Um, um, so, so, so less about what, less about the difficult things about diversity. And I think this is what I try to get across in this book. It's actually very hard to deal with. And I think planners kind of subconsciously recognize that. Um, and with all these movements these days, uh, talking about marginalization, it is indeed a um, can of uh, very difficult issues once you open it. (laughs) Uh, So, yes. So, I think um, and part of this and and because of this, uh, this whole way that when we think about planning, there's a tendency to just, let's just focus on the hardware because we can deal with where we want to put the paths. But where people want to walk, who is going to walk on it? Let us not not get too much involved. And I mean, planning has a tendency to shrink back at this point um, even though it has started with, it has always been about social, about, about social reform, social planning. So I think this is um, one aspect. Um, I think the other thing that I uh, thought about is um, this, uh, that planning doesn't think about relationships enough. Um, it's thinking about how land use and functions relate, but not how people relate. Uh And I think at the heart of planning and designing for public life, you have to think about uh, who gets along well with who and why. um, And why here and why over there people seem to be getting along fine. It's the same group of people. Uh, And I don't think we spend enough time thinking about this. Um, I mean, having worked as an urban planner, I know life as a planner can be already very chaotic. Uh, there's very little time um, other than firefighting uh, to think about this. So how um, practical is this project going to be to be taken by a city to then look at um, uh, how they can improve their their, uh, situation? I hope that this book has made it a little easier because I'm very happy if you take... What I've come up with that matters and use it, <laughs> uh, yeah, so hopefully um this could i I mean add to that sort of thinking and the type of solutions that we can find to have cities that are productive, that we can have collective life, even though we have tensions, um uh negative thought uh, how how do we turn those negative thoughts about each other to something? Uh, productive and positive. I think this is what I uh, have always wanted from the start of the project and I hope I've uh, managed to achieve a bit of it (laughs) through this book. Right. I think this is a great
1: hopeful note to wrap up our conversation. And thank you so much, Felicity, for your time and for sharing your insights with us. Uh, And best of luck with your next projects. Uh, Take care. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
0: plus.